Genesis 1 is there to rebuke us, to remind us that image bearing is universally the truth about all and every human being. At the same time, God creates us as embodied images and demands we celebrate the particularity of the image in real, historical, diverse flesh. Though Imago is universally the truth about human beings, Imago is not instantiated in some generic version of the human being. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Pastor Theologian Show. Today, we are going to be featuring another one of our past teaching resources. This is a conference lecture from our 2016 Theology Conference on Human Sexuality. This message was given by Beth Felker-Jones, who is a professor of theology at Wheaton College. And the title of Dr. Jones's talk is Embodied from Creation Through Redemption, Placing Gender and Sexuality in Theological Context. If you'd like to find out more about other resources from the conference, you can check those out at pastortheologians.com. But without further ado, let's get right into Beth Jones's talk from our 2016 conference. I'm happy to be with you all this morning, brothers and sisters. Uh, the title of my talk, Embodied from Creation Through Redemption, Placing Gender and Sexuality in Theological Context, uh, my basic intention this morning is to help us think about how we can get back to God's good creative intention for us, despite the realities of fallenness, uh, because we're being redeemed. And that's basic, but I think it's really important as we think about theology of sexuality and gender. So I'm going to make some moves to place theology and sexuality um, in context by thinking about gender and our bodies in relationship to the big picture biblical arc from creation through redemption. There will always be more to be said, and these topics require an important aspect of humble reservation and acknowledgement of mystery. But it's also important to state that we have theological resources for helping us to think well about gender and sexuality. We're not just left in the lurch, for God has chosen to reveal his goodness to us. We're after a biblically shaped imagination, one that's trained in scripture-shaped instincts for the work of living our embodied, sexed, and gendered lives together. So I'm going to move uh, in this talk this morning through several parts. Creation, part one, fallenness, redemption, creation, part two, and a brief conclusion pointing us together toward a hopeful vision for our bodies as witnesses to the God who is love. So first, creation, part one, some basic truths that we can turn to as we think about the meaning of our bodies, uh, basic truths that we'll be able to come back to more fully as we think about redemption. Those truths are first, that humans are created in the image of God. Second, that God's work of creating human beings as embodied creatures is good work. And third, that God's good creative work calls us to good creative work that's relational and vocational. So first, uh, the image of God, both universal and particular. 
So much depends on the fact that all humankind, without exception, is created in the image of God. Christian theology has recognized this in part by reiterating the truth that the imago includes both maleness and femaleness, which is, I think, why we're a little bit baffled to find that our affirmation of the imago including maleness and femaleness is being read as exclusivist. Um, it's always been intended, I think, as an inclusivist tradition. We also recognize this when we see that for Israel, it's not only the king or the Lord who is imago, it's everyone. The same God who longs for all without exception to come into right relationship with him also created all without exception in the divine image. The universality of the divine image in the human being is a clear link between creation and consummation. The Lord, Peter assures us, is not slow about his promise, as some think of slowness, but is patient with you, not wanting any to come, I lost my place, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. And in terms of discipleship, it's no small matter that the universality of image bearing demands the universal dignity of the human being. We sinners who would exclude some from the dignity and protection that is theirs as image bearers are not excluded from the gospel healing that would allow us to resist the exclusion and abuse of other human beings. Yet, so many understandings of what it means to bear the divine image fall short of this universality. Instead, those understandings have been used to legitimize theories that some humans fall outside whatever categories are being used to define the image of God. History shows us it has been too easy for sinners to conclude that some humans, other humans, lack the image and so need not be afforded the protections and affections due other members of the human race. But Genesis 1 is there to rebuke us, to remind us that image bearing is universally the truth about all and every human being. At the same time, God creates us as embodied images and demands we celebrate the particularity of the image in real, historical, diverse flesh. Though imago is universally the truth about human beings, imago is not instantiated in some generic version of the human being, but in particular bodies. Universally, the image of God is embodied in the particularities of diverse flesh. Here, too, the biblical and theological affirmation that image-bearing is both male and female has stood as a signpost to help us recognize this. Universally, humans are image-bearers, and embodied difference is the way we bear the image. Second, under creation, goodness. Very quickly, rejection of Gnostic hierarchical dualism is fundamental to the Christian doctrine of creation, Gnosticism that would divide humans in two, splitting material from spiritual and teaching the superiority of the spiritual. For the Gnostic, flesh is bad and sex is impure. Simply to be a sexual person is to be unredeemed. But against those who forbid marriage and demand abstinence from foods, 1 Timothy 4, Paul insists that everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected provided it is received with thanksgiving. 
Genesis teaches us about created goodness. The very existence of human relationship is good. Embodied difference is good. And the third aspect of creation, the relational and vocational. The good God who created us in his own image and who called us good gave us good work to do. And the goodness of that work is also part of the goodness of creation. Two words in Genesis point to the richness and the character of that work. We human beings are called to exercise dominion, and we human beings are called to be fruitful. As embodied creatures, we're supposed to do this work in a way that tells the truth about God. Dominion, then, cannot mean using up the world for our selfish purposes. It must mean stewarding the world in a way that mirrors God's own care for the world and leading it towards the kingdom. Fruitfulness, while it includes the biological fruitfulness of babies, must also be about the fruit of the Spirit, who is God and who makes us fruitful. This good work, dominion and fruitfulness, is given to embodied human beings, human beings who are male and female, human beings who are supposed to witness to the world at large and to one another, to the goodness of God. Dominion and fruitfulness are embodied work, and dominion and fruitfulness are, in a certain way at least, work that has to do with sex. Human work is to garden, to be put in Eden, to till and keep it. It's done in community, and that community includes sexual difference, the fact that we're created male and female. We hear that word good repeated many times in the creation story before we encounter the jarring not good of Genesis 2.18. Not good, says God, that the man should be alone. That not good should startle us. The text has been leading us so far on a blissful tour through the garden of delights that is God's creation. And then that not good comes out of nowhere begging us to pay attention to it. How does it even make sense to say the man is alone? He is, after all, with God. He's in relationship with God, enjoying the sort of intimacy with the creator that human beings have been missing ever since. Some types of piety might tell him to shut up and be happy. What can he need or want when he walks with God? But the text testifies otherwise. Certainly we're created to be in relationship with God, but God's judgment that something is not good tells us that we're created for something else too. We're created to be in relationship with other human beings, in relationship with other embodied creatures who are like us, not God, but who are like us, created in God's own image. God is beyond all that is created, but he chose to make us like him when he created us in the divine image. At the same time, God who is beyond all that is created is always other than creation. One of the ways that God is other than us is that God, who does not have a body, chose to make human beings embodied. Part of the not good of the human creature's aloneness is that there is no other embodied creature like him. And God solves that not good involved in humans being alone, the solution involving both embodied likeness and embodied difference. God makes another human, and the first human responds with both joy and relief, relief that he'll have someone to share his bodily life with besides the animals of the field and the birds of the air, relief that he who is embodied can be in real relationship with another embodied creature, like him. And there is joy over both shared humanity 
and bodily difference. At last, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Creation gives us something to work with as we think about gender and sexuality. We're all bearers of the divine image. We bear that image in the diversity of male and female flesh. Our bodies are good, and we have good work, dominion, and fruitfulness to do with our bodies. But all of this, image-bearing, embodiment, and work, has been vitiated under the condition of sin. So there's only so far the doctrine of creation can take us if we are to be vigilant about the existence, power, and scope of sin. Many Christian theologies have tried to run a full theology of bodies, sex, and gender from creation alone, downplaying the ways that sin infects our created nature. Which brings us to the next section of my talk, fallenness or natural but. I'm more and more aware of how hard it is becoming to say that maleness and femaleness are created goods. And it should be hard. It should be hard because sin is real. Because nature as we know it is fallen nature. And outside of redemption, we lack the tools we need to tell the difference between created goodness, which is still real even under the condition of sin, and sinful disruption of that creative goodness which makes our image bearing and our bodies and our work something different than what it ought to be. Thorns, those many consequences of sin on creation itself seem natural to us. And so we're tempted to baptize those thorns and pretend they belong to the goodness of creation. We're tempted even to demand that bushes grow thorns and to call that unnatural demand the will of God. Think about a relatively harmless example. We dress baby girls in pink, baby boys in blue. In our culture, this has been naturalized. It's hard for us to imagine baby clothing any other way. And it seems particularly odd to think about putting a little boy in pink. This rule, though, isn't natural. That is, it doesn't follow from anything inherent in the way God created babies. In the United States, pink and blue color norms for baby clothes took root in the 1920s. At the time, women's magazines recount people arguing that pink as a strong color is clearly more appropriate for boys. Things we assume are natural simply aren't as natural and normal as we believe. In contemporary gender theory, claims about what it means to be male and female run the gamut from those who deny that human beings even exist in biological sexes to those who want to claim that women and men are deeply, naturally different from each other. The two ends of this spectrum are often classified as constructivist and essentialist, respectively, with various brands of harder or softer constructivism or essentialism between the extremes, and evangelical conversations that constructivism and essentialism often gets translated uh, to uh, egalitarianism and complementarianism, though the map in there isn't perfect. Christian responses to these claims will depend on a sound understanding of both the goodness of creation and the twistedness of fallen human nature. We must ask whether our theologies are willing to name the effects of sin, noetic, spiritual, and bodily, on the way we exist as male and female creatures after the fall. 
When we affirm that God created human beings, male and female, we have to be able to ask how much access we have to God's original creative intentions. When we attribute something to human nature, male nature or female nature, Christians always need to ask which nature we're talking about. Nature as God created it to be, or nature fallen, twisted by sin. Protestant theology has rightly, in my opinion, insisted that the effects of the fall be taken with utmost seriousness. Ironically, those strands in the Protestant tradition that are most insistent on this point are often the same strands that would adopt a theology of gender that seems unable to recognize that gender roles are contingent and constructed. The roles or norms that would confidently call one list of attributes masculine and another list feminine are contingencies of geography, history, race, and class. More importantly, they're roles and norms that are contingencies we know only under the condition of sin as self-interested sinners. Our eyes need to be open to the way our cultural assumptions about femininity and masculinity may interfere with Christian discipleship. If we allow ourselves to be bound by false assumptions about what maleness and femaleness must look like, vocation and sanctification may be hindered. Rules and false ideas about what it means to be male and female have done untold damage. Other social constructions of masculinity and femininity might not be themselves sinful, but it's still a good idea to recognize they don't necessarily come from our bodies or from nature because that recognition helps us keep from bullying and marginalizing men and women who don't follow certain conventions. For example, I don't think the fact that we give blue blankets to boys and pink ones to girls is sinful. Both pink and blue are fine colors. But the fact that we assign blue to boys and pink to girls is not natural. It's not connected to our bodies. And so those social norms of pinkness and blueness can become sinful when we use them to cast scorn on people who prefer to wrap their babies in green or to mock a little boy who doesn't want a pink bedspread or to reviews a little girl a science set she wants for Christmas because it's not from the pink aisle. We learn from the word of God that we have to be suspicious of the way we tend to see things. Hey, everybody, just a quick note about our annual conference here at the Center for Pastor Theologians. This year's topic is Techne, a Christian vision of technology. And we will be hosting this conference in Chicago on October 14th to 16th, 2019. We have a lot of great speakers lined up, including Andy Crouch, Pastor Charlie Dates, Karen Swallow Pryor, and a great lineup of pastors, scholars, academic theologians, and sociologists, as well as tech experts. It's going to be a great set of conversations, and I encourage you to go to our conference website, cptconference.com, to learn more and to register. Let's get right back in with Beth Felker Jones's conference lecture on gender and sexuality entitled Embodied from Creation Through Redemption. We live in a sinful world under a condition of sin, and sin influences our view. 
It, are effects, it affects our ability to see what is true and false. We need God to heal our abilities to see and know the world. The long, sad history of violence and oppression based on gender and sexuality should spur us to ask these questions, especially as we seek theologies of sexuality and gender. Because being male and female is natural, we tend to think that we get it. When we're overly confident, we're likely to be deceived. How many men and women have been harmed by stereotyped, sin-laden assumptions about what it means to be manly or womanly? A theology of the body that seeks to address systematic brokenness will want to take seriously the harm we have done. But dealing with that brokenness by claiming that the body is just a construction, as some contemporary thinkers do, leaves us without hope. While recognizing that bodies are subject to culture and power, we still need a normative hope. The broken body of sin and death stands in needs of God's reordering as it is made a material part of God's new creation. God makes humans as embodied creatures, and this excludes dualist concepts that would underwrite violence against certain bodies. I imagine the shape of the holy body as revealed to us not first through creation, but through redemption. We can't understand our bodies outside of grace. Our bodies meet their true nature only as they are taken up into grace, as they're transformed in relationship to the risen Christ, which brings us to the next section on redemption. Disordered bodies under sin take disordered shape. We fail to cherish both human universality and human difference, and so fail to image rightly the God who is love. We abuse our bodies and the bodies of others. Our work and our love gets twisted, but rightly ordered bodies pointed towards God will incarnate gender and sexuality in a determinedly different way. As we look for God's intentions for the sanctification of our sexed and gendered bodies, we can find in the theological tradition two primary options. Either gendered bodies are a problem to be gotten rid of, to be wiped away in redemption, or they are an intrinsic part of that nature which God, in making things new, will take up into grace. Understanding the materiality of gender difference as an obstacle to be removed is and has been a live option in the Christian East. Historian Peter Brown tells us how origin, quote, conveyed above all a profound sense of the fluidity of the body. Basic aspects of human beings, such as sexuality, sexual differences, and the seemingly indestructible attributes of the person associated with the physical body, struck origin as no more than provisional, end quote. Gregory of Nyssa followed in that stream, abandoning origin's most problematic speculations, but nonetheless spiritualizing redemption when faced with the messy materiality of male and female bodies. Nyssa, and this is quoting Brown again, had no doubt whatsoever that the present division of the sexes into male and female formed part of the present anomalous condition of human beings, end quote. If we read the gendered body with Gregory, it becomes part of the tradition of the garments of skin, those things added by God to humanity only after the fall, gifts of grace to be sure, but nonetheless outside of God's creative and final intentions for humanity. 
Augustine paints a strikingly different portrait of our embodied hope. For Augustine, materiality itself, while distorted under the condition of sin, is not a problem to be overcome. It is part of God's grace for humanity. When Augustine turned to the, consider the question of gender and the resurrection, he asked with his culture whether the bodies of women would retain their sex. He gives this simple and radical answer. Both sexes are to rise. Quoting, For then there will be no lust, which is now the cause of confusion of those people who think that there will be no female bodies at the end. Vice will be taken away from those bodies, therefore, and nature preserved. And the sex of a woman is not a vice, but nature. As a woman, I kind of want to affirm that. <laughs> they will then be exempt from sexual intercourse and childbearing, but the female parts will nonetheless remain in being, accommodated not to the old uses, but to a new beauty, which so far from inciting lust, which no longer exists, will move us to praise the wisdom and clemency of God, who both made what was not and redeemed from corruption what he has made. That's from the end of the city of God. Several things are happening in this passage. First, Augustine denies the fear of the tradition from Gregory of Nyssa that if gendered bodies are to persist, disordered sexuality will have to persist as well. Augustine imagining holiness. No one believes me, but he does. Second, Augustine insists that resurrection means that vice will be removed, but nature preserved. Sexed bodies, male and female, are for Augustine the stuff of nature, and God does not make us new by destroying nature. God saves us rather than some other creatures altogether. Part of who we are is written on our materially different bodies. They incarnate the history of our lives together and our lives before God. Finally, and I think this is the key thing, Augustine imagines a way of being embodied in which material gender difference reflects beauty, beauty that orders the saints to God. Here, rather than material difference being an obstacle to the unity of the body, it displays for that body the glory of God. Because a woman's sex is not a defect, because it is natural, sex bodies will persist even as they are radically transformed at their resurrection. If we are to incline this way, we must name the dangers lurking behind any assumption that we have straightforward access to redeemed bodies. Again, we've gotten this terribly wrong. But God does not leave us wayfarers without access to the body redeemed. The fact that we get it wrong does not stop maleness and femaleness from being created goods. Male bodies are good. Female bodies are good. God made them and loves them. Dangerous stereotypes are instruments of sin, but difference itself is a good thing. God made us to be different from each other and to love and be there for each other through our differences. Whenever humans have denied this, the result has been bad for female bodies for girls and for women. Some ancient Gnostics, for example, taught that sexed bodies would be erased in our salvation. It might sound like liberation, especially to a woman who's been hurt because of being a woman, but if we take a closer look, 
we see the Gnostics see female bodies as the special problem that redemption needs to get rid of. We find texts that suggest a woman may be saved by becoming male. We have records of ascetic practice among women, hardcore fasting, being celebrated precisely because it erased the femaleness of their bodies. Celebrations of shrunken breasts and ended menstruation. We must recoil from a vision of holiness that equates it with masculinity. The way of thinking assumes the female body is an aberration, a problem to be solved, gravely underestimating the sinfulness and disorder of male bodies as we know them. And here I think we have to unequivocally reject the seductive and popular lie that hope for women lies within Gnosticism. Liberation bought at the price of the erasure of women is no freedom. This is the fundamental reason why I don't buy arguments that would do away with so-called binary sexuality, the understanding that humans exist in two sexes, male and female. A sinful world may hate and despise female bodies and lots of other bodies too, but God loves them and plans to redeem them. Moves to ignore maleness and femaleness as created goods are so often moves to denigrate the female. How can we refuse to do so? Part of the answer is that Christians need to emphasize redemption. Maleness and femaleness are created goods, but more, they are redeemed goods. God heals our brokenness and gives us the power of the Holy Spirit to help us live lives that stretch toward those good intentions. God redeems what we have forfeited. God makes the broken whole. In God's redeeming power, our very bodies become temples of the Holy Spirit, and Christ's life becomes visible in our bodies. Paul is full of confidence about this. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies also through his spirit that dwells in you. Augustine's embrace of material continuity as the primary continuity of resurrection encourages us to value our sexually differentiated bodies and to realize that our bodies are being taken up into the work of redemption. Therefore, my beloved, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. That's the last verse in Paul's long explanation of the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. His therefore, therefore be steadfast, refers to the hope we have in Jesus' resurrection. Because Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have died, we too are promised resurrection. Because Jesus has defeated death, we can trust in God's promise to grant us everlasting life. Our hope then, because it is based on Jesus's resurrection, is a bodily, fleshly hope. It means what we do with our bodies matters. Our hands matter, our feet matter, our thighs matter. Our work matters. Our chromosomes and hormones and genitals and synapses matter. The work we do with our bodies right now has a future in Jesus. And Jesus is the reason that our labor is not in vain. Our flesh, including our gender and our sexuality, are for mission, for witness, for giving glory to the God who saves. And sexually differentiated bodies have something important to do with this. With those bodies, we're meant to be witnessing to the God, to who God is, and to what he has done. 
The body is not meant for fornication, but for the Lord, and for the Lord, the Lord for the body. Christians have acknowledged two routes for embodying faithfulness in a way that the world can see. Uh, we've always had these two routes for publicly declaring and displaying that God is faithful. The first route is celibate singleness. The second is faithful marriage. In both conditions, we testify with our bodies to the power of God. For the sake of time, I'll skip my longer description there about how we do that in marriage and singleness. Um, but in both cases, we witness to God's faithfulness, um, to the fact that God is enough, to the God who is faithful to his promises. This, I want to say, gives us a way back into creation. At the end of the day, we emphasize the truth and the goodness of our created bodies, good, sexually differentiated, made for work, universally image-bearing. We can do that because Jesus redeems us and lets us begin to see creation anew, giving us the tools to sort out flowers from thorns. When we were created to share the good work of dominion and fruitfulness, work under the condition of sin separates men and women, twisting dominion and fruitfulness into parodies of what they were to be. Sin distorts the way we do marriage and sex, and our life together is male and female. But our bodies by nature are waiting for God's gracious redemption. And the work of the creator is to redeem, not destroy the good creation. Our embodied, even gendered lives are part of that redemption. And briefly to conclude, gendered and sexed embodiment is meant to be a witness to the God who is faithful to Israel and to us. Sex matters to God because bodies matter to God. Because God created our bodies and has good plans for us as embodied people. Sex is a witness to what God does in our lives. The same God who says to Israel, I will take you for my wife forever. I will take you for my wife in faithfulness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will take you for my wife in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. Hosea. Being for the body means that what we do in the body matters. We're the people who are carrying in our bodies the death of Jesus, so the life of Jesus can be made visible in our bodies. Jesus visible in our male and female flesh. People should be able to see us and see the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our bodies are both, both very good and terribly disordered but the right ordering of people towards God will be accomplished in the resurrection body when our bodies will give unmitigated witness to the creator when, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we will also bear the image of the man of heaven. Thank you for listening to this episode of the CPT Podcast, a theology podcast for the church. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider throwing us a like, sharing the podcast online, subscribing, leaving a review. Anything like that would go a long way towards helping other people hear about the podcast. The CPT Podcast is a ministry of the Center for Pastor Theologians. You can learn more about the CPT by visiting us at pastortheologians.com. You can also find us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. Our producer and editor was Trenton Jones. Our music was composed by Andrew Gerlicher. I'm Zach Wagner. Thanks for listening.